Bruce Cook is honored to have you join his conversations with people committed to talking with heart and brain functions in full operating gear. No spin, no agenda, just authentic conversation on just about anything. Welcome to the Bruce Cook Conversation. Two for the Road, Billy Grubman and sister Judy Whitmore perform at the Sagerstrom Center for the Arts, reviving the great music from the American Classic Songbook. Then Bruce talks to design and branding expert Soon Yu on 21st century business philosophy in his new book titled Friction. The Bruce Cook Conversation with your host, Bruce Cook. Trending now, here's your host, Bruce Cook. Brought to you by the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue. And good Sunday evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bruce Cook, and it is the Bruce Cook Conversation, which is why that's the name. Anyway, it's Angels Radio, ladies and gentlemen, AM 830 KLAA. Live tonight, Los Angeles, Orange County, Inland Empire. Interesting show tonight. We're going to start with a life story of, of sorts. Two people who our brother and sister who have created a musical act at a point in life when most people are putting away all of the dreams. These two people relive new dreams over and over again. I'm going to give you a little bit of history before I introduce them uh, because, frankly, it's inspiring. We're talking about two people who have achieved just about everything they've wanted to do in life. As I said, a brother and a sister, Southern Californians, and the young man who has uh, had a career that began in the paper uh, industry, was very successful, retired, and then started again. Life kept going. Dreams followed. He is an expert in 18th and 19th century art. He has been a lecturer at the Hammer Museum. He has taught it. He has also mastered flying and became a pilot at a point in life. From that, became an author, wrote an exceptional novel about the theft of art from uh, Parisians during World War II by the Nazis. Anyway, the list goes on and on. And then, at a certain point, it was time to follow another dream in life, and that was to create a musical act. And over the last decade, he, along with his sister, have had various incarnations of that musical act. They've had another show with a third partner uh, called Act Three. And now he and his sister have a show called Two for the Road. But let me tell you about the sister. Same story. It's really quite phenomenal. This sister has the same path in life, a, a total dedication to following goals, making things happen, living the dream. She, too, is an expert pilot. She, too, has done so many things, including tremendous work in philanthropy. Today, she is very, very active in Orange County philanthropy with the uh, Philharmonic and the Pacific Symphony. In fact, she chaired the Pacific Symphony Ball just recently here in Orange County and raised millions of dollars for music. So natural segue that she also loves music and the musical theater and the idea of doing a show. So with that kind of a tease, let me introduce you to Bill Grubman and Judy Whitmore, brother and sister. Next Saturday night, ladies and gentlemen, listening to this program, next Saturday night, the two of them will present their latest show, their latest act, at the Segerstrom Center for the Arts in Costa Mesa in the phenomenal Samueli Theater, Samueli Theater, which is a music box. It is a jewel, impeccable sound, incredible feeling, lighting. The audience has fabulous views of the stage. Bill and Judy, as act, uh, I'm sorry, as two for the road, will present the American Songbook in a spectacular performance. So, let's get into the nitty-gritty of two people living the dream. Welcome from Beverly Hills, Bill Grubman, and from Irvine, Judy Whitmore. Guys, say hello. Hi, Bruce. Hi, hi, hi Bruce. Hi, hi, everybody else, too. 
So nice for you to come on the show and talk about everything that you're doing. Let's start with the show next week. Talk to me about it. Judy, you start. Tell me about the show. Well, Billy and I are really excited about this, Joe. You know, our repertoire, we, we, it, we do, you know, jazz and Broadway, but what we love most is the Great American Songbook. And Great American Songbook is really sort of the history of, of American music. It's, it's uh, the music of America's greatest composers, George Gershwin and Cole Porter and Johnny Mercer. And these are songs that, are, that have stood the test of time songs that people go back to over and over again because aside from the fact they have beautiful melodies the lyrics are meaningful and they're and they are rooted in very deep feelings so we love this music billy what's your favorite number that you're going to be doing this next week oh well judy and i have a favorite that we do together and it's mine it's called i love being here with you what's that from i don't know it it's uh it's a piece from it's it's a bet medler and um barry manilow piece all right. Judy, why is that your favorite song? No, that is not my favorite song. Or your song favorite that song together. My, our, my favorite song that we do together is Henry Mancini's Two for the Road. And it's just a beautiful melody. The harmonies in it are so beautiful. And honestly, when I'm on a stage, Billy and I have done this at many shows. And when the two of us are up there together and we sing this song, Sometimes it will really choke me up to think that we are just on this road together. And um, I feel it's a very meaningful song, and I just love it. When you were kids, were you putting on shows together in the backyard? Billy, what do you, what do you say? Well, we were certainly putting them together in our bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> at, well, at, at, what point, I, I, at what point did you actually make this a reality? Judy? Judy? Well, I would say I, I, we started this about 10 years ago, and it started, uh, it started off 10 years ago as a recital that we decided to do with our singing teacher, and then from there, it just developed a life of its own, and we've been very lucky. We, we have performed in New York several times, and um, we performed regularly at the Tellos in Los Angeles, and um, we have. This is the second time we're going to be at the Samueli Theater, and one of the reasons we love that place is because it's just such a beautiful theater, and it's right here in my backyard. So I I love it. It, and, it is uh, a spectacular theater. It's one of the nicest performance theaters for the kind of thing that you two are doing, because the sight lines, no matter where you're sitting, it, you have a fabulous uh, view, and you feel like you're part of it. That's that's true. No matter where you sit in that theater, it feels like you're right there on stage with the singer. And the it's sound, very intimate. and the sound is incredible too. Now you guys are famous for having the best orchestra and the best sound. Billy, who's playing with you? Who's your musical director? What kind of a orchestra or band do you have? John Swaski is our musical director, and he has selected musicians from the uh, um, L.A. Philharmonic, from the Pacific Symphony, and from the world of, of uh, movie making the Hollywood community and they are outstanding what is the format do you start in a traditional way with like an overture do you have is there anything special that you can share with the audience are there dancers I mean do we have dancing girls in in little are outfits you are you are you dancing Billy I wasn't planning on it <laughs> oh, okay no no, no we, we don't have dancers but it does follow the same format of our last show at Samueli, we have an we have an overture, and we have Act One, and then we have the entre act music, and then we have Act Two. So it's going to be a full night of great music. What do you guys do to get the word out? Obviously, it's not easy to fill a theater. How do you do it? Well, we advertise through the Pacific Symphony. Well, we've no, we advertise in the Segerstrom um, magazine, yes. Segerstrom programs. So um, I, I think a lot of ticket sales came from there. And of course, we email every single person who we've ever come in contact with, and um, we try to spread the word that we're going to be there because we know it's going to be a good show, and we want people there and uh, to be able to enjoy it. You know what you just said, Judy, is kind of an interesting thing. When people are doing their own 
act as you guys have done and as professional as you are, you've got to call on everybody you know. What you said about sending out the emails and the, and the invitations to everyone. I have to ask this question. Does that ever feel funny to you? Because I know your people come back over and over and over again. But does it, it feel funny it, to do that? It never feels funny to me. It never. If if, I, if we did a mediocre show, it would feel very funny. But I know that the show that we do is first class. And like I say, the musicians that we work with, they are the best of the best here in Southern California. So um, so we don't want people to miss this. It's going to be wonderful. Nicely, and people keep nicely coming said. back, so we must be doing something right. Yeah, nicely said. I was at your last show, and the audience was so happy. They were cheering with applause and it was a full house and i don't think you knew every person in there which is you know it's exciting when you're not a famous name i guess that's what i was trying to say when you're not a famous name the the challenge of drawing that audience is enormous and for you guys to be able to do that and fill a big house and have the people so happy that's an accomplishment that's what i was trying to say judy not yeah. not the opposite Right. Well, you know, one of the things that was interesting to us, you know, years ago, we did a show at the Wild Recital Hall at Carnegie Hall in New York. And when we decided to do that, we said, we all, we looked at each other, we said, who is going to come to that show? We, we only know a few people in New York. And we said, well, you know what, we're just going to, let's just trust the universe. People come to New York and they want to go to Carnegie Hall and they want to see something. So we were very fortunate that the tickets sold for that concert. So we're hoping that's what will happen for this concert, too, although we are, we have just done very well with ticket sales so far. What's the hardest number to rehearse and to really get right? Is there one in particular, Billy, that was a challenge for you, that you some, a song that you really loved, that you wanted to sing, but you found that it was so tough that you really had to work it? Um, we're do we're doing a couple of medleys in the show, and and one of them was was quite difficult uh, uh, to to learn and to learn how to perform. Um, and it's a it's a song uh, based on the um, um, Tin Pan Alley music from New York. What music about back in twenty? Yeah. You know, what about the timing aspect of it? How do when you how do you? I guess what I'm saying is. How do you two rehearse a medley together? Do you have a specific time that you spend with a pianist or a conductor to get that timing right? Because that's the killer. We rehearse constantly. <laughs> yes, especially now. Especially now. This is the, fi the final stretch. Right. Who writes your patter? We do. You just we do write it, it yourself. Ourselves. We write it ourselves. And we have a wonderful director. Our director is Adriana McPhee. And um, she is, she, when I say we write the pattern, it's actually, we don't write anything unless she <laughs> approves it. So, um, and, uh, and she offers her ideas, so we are really lucky to have her. We have to take a quick break, but when we get back, I want to delve into a little bit of the introduction that I gave on both of you. You've had fascinating lives. I want, I want to know what makes you guys tick and what brought you together finally to do music together. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Bruce Cook, and it is the conversation tonight I'm enjoying very much with Bill Grubman and sister Judy Whitmore and their act coming up at Sagerstrom Center for the Arts at the Samueli Theater next Saturday night, the 15th. We're going to learn more about this great duo in just one minute when we come back. Please stay with me. Angels Radio. AM 830. At the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, the Hogue Epilepsy Program is accredited by the National Association of Epilepsy Centers as a Level 4 Epilepsy Center. This means that our experts provide the highest level care for patients with complex epilepsy. Our patient-centered approach to epilepsy treatment combined with state-of-the-art technology, including robotics and laser ablation, ensure the best possible outcomes for our patients. To learn more or for an evaluation, call 949-966-0243 or visit hogue.org forward slash epilepsy care. If you're feeling fancy free, come wander through the world with me and any place. 
and gentlemen that was bill and judy two for the road and we are back i'm bruce cook with the conversation that was gorgeous you two thank you so i love that song well you said that what a beautiful rendition congratulations thank you in in the bios that i read before the show i was amazed and it was just sort of weird that and correct me if I'm wrong. Both of you had a fear of flying, and now both of you are pilots. What's that all about? Stranger things happen. Well, explain it. How did that happen? Well, I think it's Judy. I think it's. I, oh, I think it started when I was living in Aspen, and my neighbors were um, Annie and John Denver, and they invited me to go to New York with them on their Learjet, and. I was just petrified of airplanes, but I thought to myself, I'm not turning down this opportunity. And I, on that flight to New York, I said to myself, I set a goal for myself. I said, I am going to become a Learjet pilot because I saw how much fun John was having flying with his dad. And it was just a new experience for me being in a private plane. And, the, and as soon as I got home, I, went, I just drove down to the Aspen airport, scared to death, and just said, I want to take flying lessons. I had never been in a little plane. And I think that's how it started. And I got into flying, and I think it was contagious. And then, Billy, I think you just took it up. Billy, yeah, Billy, your, your bio says you, you started in an air balloon. I did. I started flying an air balloon in Aspen when Judy was living in Colorado and did all the training for it. And then after I did the training, I had to go take the written test. I had no idea it was an aviation written test for which I had no knowledge. I never got the balloon license, but I'm, but I'm licensed to fly a Learjet. Well, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Switching gears, talk to me about the novel you wrote. I thought that book was spectacular. Whose novel? Judy's or mine? I didn't know she wrote one. What? Oh, yes, I did. I did read that you wrote one, too. What's the two of you? Do you do anything apart from one another? <laughs> we do a lot of stuff together. Do you really do. do? What do you not do together? That's a loaded Shower. question. <laughs> and we raise separate families. That's that's also good. Yes. Uh, all right, Billy. Starting with you, your book on art and World War II in Paris. Talk to me about it. I I have always wanted to write, or I had always wanted to write a book, and I always wanted to write a book about art forgery. And when I started writing the Storm Over Paris, I realized it wasn't it wasn't what I really expected. I thought I was going to be doing a contemporary piece uh, that took place in New York City. And instead, I found myself in Paris at World War II. And although the same theme, I deal with art forgeries, um, that was not the initial story I was writing. How did you come up with all the characters and interweave them with the historic data on the Nazi occupation and the people involved that were real? So it was basically, it was a novel, but it had elements of reality. What I wanted to do was create a create a true story where everything in it was true except the story. Okay. And that's basically what I did. So although my my characters are constantly interacting with historical figures, my characters are not real. Yeah, it's an art form that is not 
often experienced by our reader. I, I, I have to commend you on it also. I, Thank you. I thought it was really quite outstanding. Judy, your turn. What is your book? My novel is called uh, Come Fly With Me. It's a romantic adventure, and it was a number one uh, bestseller on Amazon with Amazon Kindle. And um, it's a romantic adventure about a woman who, um, whose husband buys a Learjet, and uh, when his captain teaches her how to fly it, she falls in love with him. And it's a, so it's a, it's a, it's a um, well, it has a lot of stars on, on Amazon, so I'm really happy about that. And it's just, like I say, romantic adventure that's just lots of fun. Slightly based on reality? And not well, not really. Just the flying scenes are based on my knowledge of flying, but it's just a made-up story. Got it. What about when you're preparing for your show? How much time do you spend worrying about the details of, like, what you're going to wear? How do you decide what you're going to wear? What are your costumes? And do you do a costume change, or do you are you in the same black tie kind of a nightclub theme throughout? I, I normally don't think about when I'm performing. I normally don't think about what I'm going to wear till about a week before, and then I think, okay, I, let's put something together. But I think for this show, because there's two of us, we did think about it in advance, and uh, there's a bit of a costume change. Do you want to tease us? I'm no. wearing black. You're wearing black. Well, that's good. Yep. <laughs> Me too. A lot of black. A lot of black. Are you doing any kind of a tribute to Cole Porter or Gershwin or any of the uh, greats that you're going to be singing? Or will there be any kind of a tribute in the segment? You know, well, we're, we actually are doing a tribute to John Denver. Yeah. Um, it's the 25th anniversary of his death uh, this week. And um, his music really informed our lives in Aspen. And um, so we thought that would be a good idea. So... What I'm hearing is it's not just Great American Songbook. It's also Contemporary American Songbook, uh, and uh, it's kind of a mix. It's, well, it's, I want to say, Billy, I think it's about 90% Great American Songbook, right? Billy, yeah. jump yeah. in. Jump well, in. Most people are under this assumption that the Great American Songbook really is Gershwin, Cole Porter, Arlen, these, these composers, but it really encompasses a great deal of music because the Great American Songbook is the great music of of our generations, and it includes a lot of things. So artists like John Denver and his music will be will be a part of that American Songbook. I was a big fan of John Denver, so I'm looking forward to that. Talk to me about the audience appreciation of the kind of music you're doing. It isn't widespread among youth but i'm finding that kids are interested in it and that they love the lyrics what do you say bills you start i know my kids love love the music and i hear them playing it not music that i particularly sing but um they do play they do play music from uh, from the 40s and 50s uh, i hear i hear cole porter and irving berlin music constantly on their phones but is that so just is that just because dad's influence or or do you think it comes from a, a broader sense of appreciation i don't think so my kids don't listen to a thing i say so i think it's something <laughs> that they really enjoy <laughs> what about you judy well you know what i feel like i feel like it's my mission in life to help keep this music alive and I think it was probably about, I, I don't know, eight or nine months ago. It was just before we started, we thought about doing this show. Um, I was in a store, and, and there was a young man helping me. He was probably in his mid-20s, and we started talking. And he, I, during the course of our conversation, I discovered he had never heard of Frank Sinatra. He had no idea who Frank Sinatra was. And so I thought, well, doesn't everybody know who Frank Sinatra was? And so that sort of really... Um, solidified my commitment more than ever to do what I can to make sure that young people get to hear this music. I like that a lot. And it is it is shocking that so many people don't know those great names, not just Sinatra, uh, so many of them. Did you both come from a musical family? Did your parents or grandparents um, have any... Well, wait a minute. I read, Judy, that your grandfather was a, a musician in the 
in the MGM Orchestra and that you're named after Judy Garland. Talk to me about That's, that. Well, uh, uh, B- Billy's and my grandfather, our Grandpa Sam, he was first violinist in the MGM Studio Orchestra from 1934 through the late 1950s. And every single MGM musical that you have seen on TV, every great musical with, with Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney and goodness knows who else, you could hear my grandfather in the violin section because he was there. And he would tell us stories about how he loved working with Judy Garland and she was so sweet and so nice and with Jane Powell and all those great MGM stars from way back in the day. So he was a great presence in our life, and he would um, – Billy, I remember you told me that you even went down to MGM one day with Grandpa to pick up his paycheck. I did. Tell that story. Tell that story. Not much of a story. In those days, my grandparents were living in the San Fernando Valley, and the 405 freeway didn't exist yet. So needless to say, it was a long ride to get to Culver City. And um, we took Sepulveda Boulevard and went went over the canyon and – picked up his check, and drove all the way back home again. Well, didn't you stop for lunch? Who can remember that that long ago? You remember everything. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> we have a minute left. You guys, uh, plug your show. How do, how do people buy last-minute tickets this week to come and hear you and see you? Just go on to the Seagerstrom website, and it's this, this coming Saturday night, October 15th, 8 o'clock at the Sam Welly Theater. We're going to be there having a great time, and we hope people will come and, and join us. Sounds pretty good. Last word, Bill Grubman? It's going to be a wonderful evening, and I hope everybody will attend. I hope you'll come, Bruce. I'm looking forward to it. Can't wait. Wonderful. Bill Grubman, Judy Whitmore, two for the road, ladies and gentlemen. You heard them sing the song on our show tonight. Anyway, uh, check it out. I think you'll really enjoy the, the experience if you go and see them at Samueli Saturday, October 15th, 8 o'clock. We're taking another break. We thank them for joining us. The conversation will be right back. We're switching gears, and you're going to meet an incredible guy who is an art, artist, uh, a designer, a businessman, and a philosopher who's got some amazing life advice. So stay with me. Soon you will be with me in the second half hour when we come back. Can't get my fill. And Bradley Cooper's looks are oh, thrill. Holding hands in the movie show when all the lights are low. May not be new, but I like it. How about Angels Radio? AME 30. Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute at Hogue is ranked in the top 1% in the nation by U.S. News and World Report. It provides world-class care through multidisciplinary expert teams, each focusing on specific disorders of the brain and spine, such as stroke, aneurysms, brain tumors, Parkinson's disease, cognitive disorders including Alzheimer's, epilepsy, back pain, as well as spinal cord issues, addiction medicine, and sleep disorders. Our renowned experts offer the best evidence-based care, state-of-the-art technology, and the latest clinical research, all focused on the individual patient. Our stroke program was the first in Orange County named as a certified comprehensive stroke center, and our brain tumor program is the largest in Orange County and among the top volume programs in the Western United States. Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute. Compassionate care, clinical excellence, creative intelligence. To learn more, call 949-516-9075 or visit hogue.org forward slash neuroinstitute. Girl, I like you, I do. I want to be a friend, go shopping in a Benz. I like you, I do. I hit you in a land, can you fit me in your plans? I like you, I do. We went over to France and we woke up in Japan. I like you, Isn't this a great song, ladies and gentlemen? I like you, and I like all you listeners tonight. I'm Bruce Cook. It's The Conversation, and we continue our time together tonight on Angels Radio AM 830 KLAA. We move on. We enjoyed our time with Bill Grubman and Judy Whitmore talking about their show business career, and we really switched the gears, and I'm going to introduce you to a very special man who has written a very interesting book. Let me tell you a little bit about him as I read from his author's bio. He is an international speaker, best-selling author on innovation design, on branding, 
His previous book, titled Iconic Advantage, won a Global Medal Award from Axion Business. His name is Soon Hugh. He most recently worked as the Global VP of Innovation and Office at VF Corporation, the parent organization to the North Face, Vans, Timberland, and Wrangler brands. Soon Yu has been a founder and CEO of numerous venture-based startups and was recognized as a finalist for the prestigious Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Prior to his writing career, he worked for Bain & Company, the Clorox Company, Chiquita Brands, where he gained industry recognition from the Webby Award, Favorite Website, and Dope Award. Soon, frequently guest lectures at Stanford University, where he also received his MBA. He was a former adjunct professor, professor at Parsons School of Design. His book, ladies and gentlemen, which he has co-written with author Dave Beerus, is titled Friction. And on the cover, it states, adding value by making people work for it. Before I introduce you to Soon Yu, let me read one of the review comments about this book. Quote, With friction we walk. With no friction we fall on our face. If you are running a business, if you are launching a product or service, this essential book will help you add the right smidgen of friction so that you can walk or even better, run towards your goal. Avoid face plants. Read the book now. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming Soon You. Soon. <laughs> Bruce, thank you for such a kind introduction. And for actually reading a quote by Chip Peek, who's a good friend of mine, and you wrote the book uh, Switch, which is all about change management, which actually requires a whole bunch of so, yes, thank you uh, for the opportunity to uh, join your show. Well, let's get right to it. I want to ask you about a million questions in our time together, but let's me start, let me start by saying with this first question. In your book, you talk about pricing things above market value. To be exclusive, you need to exclude people. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Well, oftentimes when we are able to get uh, products or services and we price them too low, our perception of the value isn't shaped by the actual value of the product. It's oftentimes by how we price it. And the same is true for, you know, the way we think of ourselves and we make ourselves too available um, and too easy. Uh, then oftentimes, guess what? People take us for granted. And so the idea of pricing is just sort of this general thing of um, it's, it's creating perception. And sometimes, actually, when you price things above market value, people actually want it more, and it feeds on itself. And the more they want it, the more other people will want it. And pretty soon, the price that you actually first set isn't actually going to be high enough because, as you know, supply equals demand and by sometimes pricing higher you actually create more demand you know i think we all know that but i think we all find it hard to believe until we look at products like especially luxury goods uh what comes to mind are, is are the status symbol uh, purses and, and luggage from louis vuitton which are canvas impregnated products the value or the cost of which is minuscule compared to the value of buying them. Uh, one example. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about how you can turn a very reasonably priced product into a very expensive purchase from branding. That's absolutely right. Um, Louis Vuitton is a great example. Um, I would probably argue that the actual cost of goods is maybe less than 5% of what you're actually paying for. <laughs> the rest is really in uh, the branding, the marketing, the storefront, the store staff, 
and then everything else that goes into sort of, uh, uh, you know, creating the perception that this is one of the most sought-after bags in the world. And, and we oftentimes buy into that. We pay for that added friction that's created and that creates the meaning that's behind the product. And so oftentimes what we're paying for is more than just a leather good or, to your point, a canvas good with a bunch of metal latches and whatnot. We're oftentimes paying for the story, the narrative, and our ability to actually participate in that story and that narrative. And the more we make that story interesting, the more we make that story harder to participate in or belong to, the more, believe it or not, people are willing to pay more for being part of that. Yeah, story. it's interesting. It's kind of a contradiction, though, in terms of your book friction, because so much of the theme of this book, ladies and gentlemen, is about building relationships and finding ways to communicate better with people and to create harmony. Yet, in fact, in the world of marketing and branding, there is a lot of, quote-unquote, I'll use the word magic rather than something less uh, favorable and more derogatory, as we've, just <laughs> as we've just discussed. It's almost hypocritical. But I want to go back to what I said about... To, to reach a goal and to be exclusive, you need to sometimes exclude people. How do you do that in terms of what you've written about, in terms of building character and building community and building trust? How do you then exclude people that don't fit into the mold? You know, it's, I think sometimes it's more about if you're going to have somebody join your company, if you're going to have somebody join your community, Make sure they've earned the right to join it. And in that, I don't mean in terms of, oh, you know, they look a certain way. But more that, hey, if you're going to be a Navy SEAL, you better have trained and you better have been in a situation where if I need to count on you, I know you've done the 10,000 hours of scuba diving, of jumping out of uh, airplanes, of, you know, sharpshooting, whatever it is, so that you are in that stressful situation. I can turn to you and say, hey, I need you to do X, Y, and Z, and you're going to do X, Y, and Z, and I can count on you. So a lot of times what it means is that you've got to earn your way into that company or into that group or into that situation by putting in the 10,000 hours. It's not about how you look or it's not about you check mark off a certain you know demographic and all that. What I'm talking about is sometimes what you want to do is make sure that it is hard for people to join your group because being part of your group means something. And it also then reinforces the values and the confidence and the expertise of those who are already in the group to know that whoever's going to join them has to meet certain criteria, has to meet certain hurdles, and the knowledge that they know not anybody off the street could actually join this group. Well. It's kind of like what I said about the cover of your book, adding value by making people work for it. Earn it. Learn it. Earn it. Be a part of it. Otherwise, you don't qualify. But along those same lines, you also emphasize the fact that the corporate culture has to be somewhat inclusive in order to, along with being tough on people and along with encouraging to be their best, with, if they get if it becomes too meaningless, people lose interest and they and they fall off. What do you do? You have a section of the book where you where you say just add Taylor Swift. Talk to the audience about what that means. So let's step back and think about this idea of why do we go to work? Why do you and I go to work? Yes. On a fundamental level, it's probably, sure, we want a paycheck, we need to support the family, we want to put food on the table, you know, our kids want to go to a private school, whatever it might be. Sure, there is sort of the, the idea that we need to support our livelihood. But at some pretty early point in time, that's not going to be enough. In fact, all the studies are showing, and McKinsey did a study that said that 70% of U.S.-based employees really go to work because work provides a sense of purpose for them. And so oftentimes it's a lot more than just getting a paycheck. 
it's this idea that we go to work for something that helps us to find a little more purpose in our life, a little bit more meaning. And when you look at the book that Dan Pink wrote, that's called Drive, it really talks about what motivates us. He talks about three things that motivate us, and this, this applies to work. And those three things all require additional friction, meaning additional effort by both ourselves, our bosses, the company itself, in order, for to, uh, in order to allow for these three items. And those three items are, one, mastery. The second one is autonomy. And the third is purpose. So you think about this idea of mastery. What something that gets us excited about going to work, it's the ability to actually learn something. And then on top of that, once we've learned it, it's the ability to actually apply what we've learned to a new project, to our team. And in, in, even taking it to the next level, we're so good at it that people come to us for advice and counsel about what we've mastered. And in fact, we start teaching it. And at some point, we start mentoring other people. All those are all forms of good friction that if we have more of those in our work situation, we're actually going to be more motivated to go to work. As it relates to autonomy, it's all about this idea of give me more interesting work, more work where I can demonstrate my skills and my independence and my responsibility. So instead of just giving me menial tasks, I want to get involved in more strategic initiatives. I'm willing to put in the extra hours to do that. I'm going to learn our strategy. I'm going to learn how this applies to the goals in the company. And I'm going to understand how this applies across different functions. All of a sudden, I want to get, in a cross, you know, get involved in a cross-functional project. A lot more headaches, but guess what? A lot more rewards in terms of understanding different points of view that actually make our company work and that makes this project more successful. And so these are all different ways to sort of demonstrate autonomy. We talked about purpose. Purpose is hugely important. And this idea of, hey, if you're at work and you're getting involved in things that are helping Maybe it's the community. Maybe we have a stake in our community as a company. And, you know, I'm going to put in some extra hours and volunteer and do some stuff for the community. That gives us a certain amount of reward. Oh, guess what? I want to get involved in one of our ERGs or affinity organizations that support different, you know, as we were talking about, uh, ability to have more inclusivity and, and, and more diversity within the company. Or, or guess what? I'm going to work on things that improve the team culture. Or more importantly, if there's something that the company has a purpose and mission towards, I'm going to invest on thought leadership around that area, and I'm going to add that back to the company. All these things, if you think about it from an employee perspective, you're actually asking to invest more time and energy to get smarter at something, to teach something, to become a mentor, to, to do something more cross-functional or strategic, or to work on additional hours of volunteering around the community or the team development. But in many ways, those additional hours that you're investing in are going to be more and more rewarding. Very, very well put. Listen, we got to take a break. But when we come back, I want to ask you about how you achieve that in this world of Zoom employees that are not going into offices and not interacting with fellow employees. Also, you got to tell me what you mean by just add Taylor Swift when we come back. Soon you, ladies and gentlemen, is joining me tonight with his book, Friction, and how to make it in life and in the workplace to get a rewarding, satisfying, fulfilling, and, and potential uh, of wonderful things to happen. We'll be right back. Angels Radio. AMA 30. As part of the Pickup Family Neurosciences Institute, Hoag's Neurospine Program offers innovative methods to reduce pain, inflammation, and improve mobility safely and effectively, often without surgery. Should you need surgery, Hoag is a leader with minimally invasive techniques, 3D imaging, and robotics to restore your golf swing or your swing dance. Many of our patients go home in just a few hours, walking the very next day. Call our dedicated nurse navigator at 949-537-2931 for an evaluation or visit hoag.org forward slash
And we are back. I'm back with Sun Yu. My name is Bruce Cook. It's the conversation live tonight. Soon, I said, I, I need to know what you think about remote working that has taken hold in our society. Yes, um, it's, it's pretty prevalent. Um, we've seen a lot of innovation happen when it comes to working remotely. We've seen all these new technologies from Zoom and Slack and all these new uh, apps that you can use to do networking and create meetings and even have uh, ideation sessions. And I think what's missing is that we've forgotten that where we really need to start innovating is in-person work. We actually, instead of forcing people to come back to work with some arbitrary rule of, oh, 60, 40, or, you know, you need to come in on Mondays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, whatever it might be, we need to make coming to work something fragrant, something that we are excited about, something where there's actually FOMO, right, the idea of fear of missing out. And so as employers and as people who are running businesses, if we really want our employees back and we want them coming back to work, we need to think about what's the intent and how do we make that intent something that is actually meaningful to people. So part of it is we go back to the idea of the mastery, autonomy, and purpose. Well, why don't we have a meeting where you're actually able to present what you're working on to your peers, maybe to your peers' bosses or to your boss's boss? Often it's like, hey, skin in the game, and I'm now getting some recognition and reward for the work I'm doing. And, and I am going to be actually more motivated coming. I don't want to miss a situation where I can both showcase what I'm doing, but also see what everybody else is doing. How about another big reason, as Microsoft did a study in terms of what's the one perk that Gen Z really wants? Well, they want more social interaction. They surveyed 20,000 people, and 84% of them said they would more likely come back to work if there were more opportunities for social interaction. So, hey, every Wednesday, come into work, and we will pay for you to have lunch with somebody from another group that you don't know that well. Whoa, hey, that's a novel idea, but, you know, I get a free lunch. I get to meet somebody new, and in the process, I get that social interaction, but I also improve skills and build relationships that are going to help me with my work. So I think the focus has to be what can we do to make in-person work more innovative, more fun, more interesting, more rewarding, and more focused on mastery, autonomy, purpose, and social connection. Is that what you refer to as conversational economy? Yes, exactly. It's all about this idea of what value, what is the economics of us connecting with each other? And sometimes we overlook the importance of having face-to-face discussions, seeing body language in 3D versus in 2D, right? Being able to have a moment of silence when somebody looks perplexed, having them work through it, working with them on that. Also, oftentimes we need to actually resolve conflict, not by setting up a Zoom meeting and not really dealing with the call the pink elephant in the room. Sometimes we have to sit in a room with the struggle. We actually have to agree to disagree and come back to it. Um, those are all elements of what I call good friction that oftentimes require in-person, um, you know, so in-person situations, not just Zoom. Talk to me briefly about your philosophy that you write in the book, M-O-R-E, more. What is that? So more is really about how do we go about figuring out designing systems that add more good friction into our lives. So we talk about if you're designing an experience, the first M is about mapping the experience itself. And then then you want to organize it for the pivotal moment, okay? So that's the O, ordering it and organizing it to identify pivotal moments inside of that experience. Then you want to remove any of the bad friction in those pivotal moments. See, BMW, when they design a product, they realize that between the time they're researching and concerning buying a product, actually purchasing or leasing it, to owning it and servicing it, to eventually selling it or donating it, there's probably 20,000 moments inside of that 
they realize only about 20 of them really matter. So that's the idea of, you know, organizing for the pivotal moment. Inside those pivotal moments, there are things that really drive us crazy, right? They create uncertainty, risk, um, they, they annoy us. Those are bad frictions. So you want to remove the bad friction. That's the R. And then the last one, embrace a dose of good friction. This is the idea of what can you add back in that will create engagement, meaning, belonging, rapport, assurance, confidence, and the one we talked about earlier, exclusivity. Think about how you might, in those pivotal moments, actually put friction back in to create greater involvement, engagement, and investment by your customers and your consumers. Wonderful. You know, I hate to say this, but we got one minute left in our program tonight, and there's so much more I need to get from you. Will you come back again and, and continue this conversation? Absolutely. Be very excited to. In the meantime, tell the listening audience how to get your book. Where do we find it? On Amazon, where is it? Yes. Uh, if you type in uh, Friction and my name, Soon You, it's S-O-O-N-Y-U, on Amazon, you'll absolutely see the book, and you'll see it. It looks like sandpaper that happens to have a Tiffany bow wrapped around it. <laughs> I, I wonder where you got that idea as a, as a marketing expert. <laughs> Tiffany's another one of those places that uh, has a lot of lot of branding and marketing involved. Anyway, That's right. a lot of good friction. <laughs> a lot of good friction. They've mastered good friction. Listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We've learned a lot. I still want to know what the what the Taylor Swift moment is, and I'm going to save that for when you come back again and join me again. I have to say good night, Sunyu. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for, for listening to the show. I am honored that you tune in every Sunday night. We'll be back again Sundays in the future. I'm Bruce Cook saying good night, good health, take care of one another. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Bruce Cook Conversation. Hear The Bruce Cook Conversation on Sundays at 6 p.m. Pacific on AM830 KLAA. And hear the podcasts of every show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. <laughs>